Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. And action. Oh, Shorel, for so many years I believed you were just a hemlock tree, but now I understand you're a being of higher intelligence from a distant planet, and you have to go home because you're being hunted by the evil woolly Adelgid, which I thought at first had something to do with Adele, which would have been tragic because I adore Adele. We could have had it all rolling in the deep, but Shorel, we did have it all. Tree on woman, woman on tree. I can never go back to my own species, so please, one last time. Cut. I'm not feeling any commitment here in this scene. Well, he just stands there like a tree. He is a tree. We've been over this. We'll add some effects in post-production so it seems like he's really into you. This is turning out to be a very different project than the one I was led to believe. Really? It's called Hemlock. It's a love and action thriller about a race of trees that came here to save humanity. It's basically E.T. with bark. This was all in your contract. Yeah, but I need something believable to latch onto. Who's going to believe in this woolly adelgid thing killing all the trees? Come on. Actually, that's from real life. It's a serious problem. Oh. Well, I don't do real life. Well, just announce the show, and then you can go to your trailer. Today, this happy band of revelers does present to you a radio program in the classic style, its subject being the Hemlock, a tragedy in three acts. And now, the man who says once you've had large, you have a new appreciation for the pain of splinters. Colin McEnroe. Yeah, don't stay away from Larch. Um, All right, so we are doing a show on the Eastern Hemlock today. Now, I know what you're thinking, which is I'm not going to sit here and listen to a whole show about a tree. But you are, and you're going to be fascinated by this. It's, first of all, a matter of some urgency. And it's also, as we've discovered, anytime you... Well, you should pardon the expression, bore into a subject. Um, you do find all kinds of amazing stuff that kind of goes along with it. So we're going to be talking today, first of all, of all, about whether we're having a funeral for the Eastern Hemlock, a death watch for the Eastern Hemlock, or or maybe a fight to save the Eastern Hemlock. And you may get different answers from different guests. We're also going to talk to you about some of the emotions and attitude and artistry and poetry that have attached themselves to the Eastern Hemlock over time. I think you're going to be very surprised by that. Even plunge a little bit uh, into the mythology and folklore of the hemlock. The Native Americans had a different relationship with it than we did. Um, You'll meet some interesting historical figures. And then towards the end, uh, we'll also sort of talk about what, if anything, can be done. We, We may talk a lot about that over the course of the show today. Let me tell you who's here. I can hear him scribbling notes to himself uh, in some far-flung location. Uh, so connecting to us from a distant studio is Bob Sullivan. Uh, he is a journalist and the author of several books, including Rats, which we did a show about him with, The Thoreau You Didn't Know, and My American Revolution. We also did that show with Robert Sullivan. He is a contributing editor to Vogue, and his writing has appeared in The New Yorker New York Times Magazine. Um, I should also say that he's sort of the trigger for this project because of an essay he wrote in Orion uh, Magazine, which is also the foreword to a book 
edited by my next guest. The book, by the way, is called Hemlock, a Forest Giant on the Edge. Uh, David Foster is the director of Harvard University's Harvard Forest and the author of Thoreau's Country, Journey Through a Transformed Landscape, and Hemlock, as I said, a forest giant on the edge. So um, so here we go. And then a little bit later in the show, you're going to meet uh, Dana Lynn Driscoll, who blogs about sustainability and the natural world and um, is something of an expert on the folklore of the hemlock, um, stories that the Native Americans told about it. We'll also be talking about how different cultures have used the hemlock. And as you can hear, my voice is already starting to go. So excuse me while I clear my voice. <clears throat> I'm a little problem here post-vacation. And um, David Foster, I'm going to begin with you. Um, there are all kinds of trees and all kinds of trees we could be having a conversation about. Uh, before we even get to the threat posed to the hemlock, what's so special about the hemlock and the eastern hemlock in the first place? Well, eastern hemlock is an iconic tree. It's unique for the Northeast. It is one of our oldest growing trees. It's one of our most shade-tolerant trees. It dominates forests. It creates a unique environment, and it controls the way that streams, wetlands, and woods all operate. When we say dominates a forest, I don't know, that almost doesn't sound like a good thing. It dominates the forest in a benign way, I assume. Uh, it dominates it in a very controlling way. You know, eastern hemlock grows tall. It has a phenomenal capacity at absorbing light. And so beneath it is deep shade. It's what uh, lends a completely different environment to hemlock forests. It's what makes them cold and dark. And it actually makes it uh, inhospitable for most other species to grow in it. So hemlock forests tend to be unique and relatively barren of most other species. You know, when we talk about an Amazonian forest, we talk about a canopy. Is the hemlock, eastern hemlock, is that sort of the canopy of our northern forests? Yeah, very definitely. Yeah. It oftentimes grows with other trees, white pine and a variety of hardwoods, but hemlock is the one that really stands out as controlling the scene. Now, Bob Sullivan, in all of the ways that David is talking about, uh, from a forester's point of view, what the hemlock does, it does therefore create these spaces, these very, very quiet and dark spaces beneath it. And that's one of the things that you looked into and kind of who gravitated towards those spaces. And it turns out poets and writers have been really interested uh, in those dark hemlock spaces. I'll let you pick up the story from there. Well, just that, um, yeah, I'm, I'm I just feel happy and fortunate. You actually, I'm not scribbling. I'm paging through my, my copy of, um, of Hemlock, A Forest Giant on the Edge, which I'm just happy to be a part of. I mean, because the Harvard Forest is just an amazing place to visit just in a basic sense. But, um, yeah, I got to go to their, to their Hemlock Grove. And I guess the thing that is the way I also see those same things that David just said is Hemlock is kind of um, – it's it's far away and close by. It's it's the forest that's um, that's near a big city maybe, but uh, is still standing because nobody really wanted the the wood. It's never been a precious wood. It's it's for me. It's kind of a, a workaday uh, forest, um, not in a simple sense. Again, as as he said, it, it kind of it calls the sh the shots in a, in a big way in its area, and it ends up being that place that uh, you know that fish can spawn and that's that's you know ten degrees cooler than other areas. But but it's yeah, it's the place that, for instance, um, Thoreau liked um, Thoreau going to Mount Monadnock, for instance, and it being 
a faraway place that was really close in. So, so always it's, it's the forest that kind of is a surprise. Oh, that's there? Oh, right, nobody wanted that or nobody went there or it was on a hill that was a little bit out of the way. So it's out of the way, but it's nearby. Although um, David Foster, um, Thoreau also lived at the, the last time in history, the most recent time in history, that the hemlock was really having a bad time of it, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, with the European settlement and the expansion of agriculture and the cutting of forests all across the east and especially across New England, forests fell, farms rose up, and hemlock was used intensively. It was used for building, but it was especially used uh, for its bark, for the tanning process to turn hides into leather. And so Henry Thoreau lived at the peak of that period, mid-19th century, when New England was largely farmland. The few forests we had were just woodlots, and hemlock was pretty scarce. It had been beaten back and into the kind of ravines and crevices and mountainsides that Bob's been talking about. And in the last 150 years, it's come back in, in just a phenomenal rebound. So when, when Thoreau finds a hemlock grove and, and that kind of quiet and that kind of cool, and I think a lot of people know exactly what Bob Sullivan is talking about, too, that uh, walking into a place that's 10 degrees cooler than the rest of the forest, Thoreau's actually coming upon a very special place to him. It, it isn't there in the profusion that maybe we would have found it here in New England over the last 25 years. Yeah, absolutely. And so he remarked on it because it was so special. It was such a a different, Mm -hmm. quiet place in contrast to the rest of this very active landscape that he lived in. So in just a minute, we are going to meet the villain of this piece, the terrible, gnashing, uh, cottony-covered bastard of this piece. But before we do that, we have to introduce one or two other villains. One of the major villains in almost any story like this one, unfortunately, is humankind. Um, And so Bob (laughs) Sullivan, uh, you know, David Foster was just talking about the use uh, of of, um, the hemlock bark for tanning. And as a result, tanneries sometimes would spring up in, in hemlock forests. So maybe it's time for you to introduce us to Colonel Zadok Pratt, maybe one of the other villains of this story. Colonel Pratt, I mean, uh, who, who ran a tannery uh, in the Catskills. Um, and it, it, it was called, he eventually named the place Prattsville. Um, he had this idea that he would not, uh, that he, would, he wasn't going to live on the citizens. He was going to live with them. But eventually he cut down all the hemlock in this area in the Catskills that, by the way, is now a ski resort, ski area. So, so that gives you an idea of what kind of landscape it is. But he brought in furs from all over the world into this town. And, um, and you know, they just they, – it was they used the bark to tan the, to tan the hides. And um, if you – you know, I've been up there fishing and the fishermen all talk about uh, how the – trout must have been so much bigger when there were cool hemlock groves, you know, shading the banks. And of course, uh, the only worse thing than believing a writer is, is believing a fisherman. So I, I don't know what, if it's true, but anyway, the, um, the, and so Pratt built this, mo- built this monument to himself up in the woods. There are, you know, you can go through and see these plaques to his life. Um, and then I think he had himself uh, a hemlock coffin made, um, but the but there was some huge flood and and his coffin was was f- you know flooded away and the story has a kind of weird afterward a, an, an intensely almost 
I mean, it's not tragic because you can't really link them, but I somehow see them as linked um, in that during the hurricane flooding that happened up there a couple of years ago, the town was really hit hard. And, um, and I just, you know, you just one always thinks, you know, what if Pratt hadn't, hadn't gone nuts uh, those, those years ago up, up in the up in the Catskills and cut everything down. But, um, but, it's, but it's actually still a really beautiful town, um, although Hemlock, the Adelgid, is, has hit up there too. So, Well, before we leave off... Oh, uh, I didn't mean to mention the, the get ahead with the villain. No, that's all right. That's all right. That's a, it's not a spoiler. <laughs> it's a teaser. But before we leave off Colonel Zadok Pratt, I, I would be remiss if I did not bring up two details from Bob's writing that it really caught my eye, uh, prurient soul that I am. One of them is that uh, Zadok Pratt uh, went through wives almost as fast as he went through hemlocks. Uh, many, so many wives. He had five, yes. five wives. Uh, I think three of them died, and then the fourth divorced him. And then the fifth... Uh, the fifth wife, yes. Well, the fifth yes. was, I, I have the quote here. Um, yeah. well, did you yeah. want to say something about the fifth before I uh, No, just I go for the quote. The quote is my, yes. Yeah. Because he was apparently such a glittering presence, sort of one mm-hmm. of the Kardashians of tanning, you know, that, that mm-hmm. his, his activities were covered in the industry's newspaper. The shoe, mm-hmm. leather, rep, shoe, the shoe and leather reporter was the uh, trade of the industry. And the editor uh, covered his marriage, I guess, and uh, described the final, the fifth and final Mrs. Zadok Pratt as mm-hmm. uh, that she had, quote, acquired that amiability and flavor of the swamp that made her attractive to the old tanner. Um, you know, the the final Mississippi practice, and then of course, not that this matters, but shoe and leather reporter. I mean, when I was a young newspaper reporter, you had to um, go and use your shoe leather. I right. mean, that was part of the. So it's a very complicated place to work. I'm so sure. it, it raises confused. the question: What the editor of the shoe and leather reporter told his reporters to go use when he was right. tracking down stories? Because presumably, mm-hmm. shoe leather was on everyone's mind already. Right. And so the, were they just running in circles? The other thing we have to say uh, talk, say is about Zadok Pratt's coffin, uh, which after he had murdered all these hemlocks for his tanning, uh, he insisted on being buried in a hemlock coffin, right? Mm-hmm. And, and one mm-hmm. of the reasons for this is that when you put a hemlock log on the fire, which you're not even necessarily wise to do, uh, it cracks and, snap, and snaps like, uh, like Rice Krispies. And he said, uh, and uh, when I die, uh, let me bur- be buried in a hemlock coffin so I'll go through hell snapping. And that's, that's a refrain. That's still like I have a friend who sings a lot of old folk songs from the Catskills, and that's a refrain that shows up in a lot of old folk songs up there. So uh, going through hell snapping? That refrain? Uh, and when I die, let me be buried in Hamilton. So yeah, I'll go through. Yeah. Yes, exactly. All right. um, our number, by the way, if you want to chime in about this, 860-275-7266. One such person who has called, 860-275-7266, is another David, a Dave, in fact, on his cell phone. Hi, Dave. You're on the air. Hey, how are you folks? Good. Hey, listen, I'm, I've been a Connecticut licensed arborist for about 20 years now. I studied forestry at the University of Vermont and Paul Smith College, and i got to tell you, I'm not as pessimistic as a lot of folks are about it. We treat hemlocks every day. There's a lot of really great research which is going on, especially at you know, some of the land-grant universities. And the earlier research that was done by Dr. Mark McClure here in Connecticut really sort of pointed an eye on some of the cultural practices that we can use. As arborists, we find that folks tend to jump to the gun by cutting some of their trees down first, and we'd like to see more of a... Uh, of a, a you know a, a better view of that. So the worst thing you can do for a tree that has hemlock woolly adelgid is to fertilize it. That's the first thing. And the second thing is is it's not necessarily the hemlock woolly adelgid which is killing the trees. It's the elongate hemlock scale 
that accompanies that particular insect. And I'll, I'll take my comments off the air. All right. Well, you're, you are now you have catapulted us ahead of our story, but we might as well go there. We, we're now there anyway. So, David Foster, enter the real villain of the piece, the hemlock woolly adelgid, sometimes known as the HWA. So, so tell us about this beast. So let me uh, let me set the scene. So. From the day of Henry Thoreau for the next 150 years, hemlock has rebounded, and it's, uh, it's regrown uh, all across New England from Connecticut to, to Maine. Uh, it's important to, to recognize, as Bob pointed out, that it also persisted in mountainsides and ravines. And so some of our most majestic forests in the region, the old-growth forests that remain, are dominated by hemlock. So hemlock has has recovered to become just a a phenomenally important tree, um, both because of of its abundance and because of the the way that it shapes the land and that people respond to it. So anyway, so hemlock's sitting out there, and an insect has been brought in from Asia called the hemlock woolly adelgid. It's an aphid-sized, aphid-like insect, that pierces the base of the needle and essentially sucks the life out of the hemlock trees. And uh, having gotten into New England in about 1985, it's gradually spread northward. It's also spread southward through the entire range of hemlock down the Appalachians. It's moving westward through Pennsylvania and beyond. And it has the potential of spreading throughout the entire range of hemlock. And if, if you're in the forest, uh, at least at one of its stages, right, you can see these cottony little sacks there on the on the. That's hemlock. right. It produces this cottony material as a covering for its eggs. And it protects them through the winter. Uh, they then emerge, and you'll see the little the aphid-sized insects scurrying around and then adhering to the base of these needles. And as the previous uh, caller remarked, it has spread throughout Connecticut. Um, it's really decimated the hemlock forests of Connecticut. Uh, you can treat it locally with um, insecticides in your backyard, individual trees, but that's not possible uh, forest-wide. It's not possible to do at a scale that you can help protect it naturally. And to date, there actually is no good remedy or combatant. He said, he used the word cultural, uh, and I know that there are, are several different ways to deal with anything, chemical, cultural, um, and critter, right? You can bring in, we can maybe talk about predatory critters uh, as well. What does he mean by cultural? Well, so how do we, how do we as individuals, as landowners, as society respond to an invasive insect that's starting to kill our trees? Uh, Interestingly, one of the major responses is to go out and cut those trees down Mm -hmm. before the insect does all of its damage with the idea, I think, kind of twofold. One is that, well, there are good trees out there. We can get the wood from them before the insects kill them. And secondly, there's this kind of perverse notion that if we go out and remove the trees and control the situation, it actually does less damage than the insect would if it killed it. That latter notion is actually incorrect. Mm-hmm. So I, I think a big, if, if it's okay for me yeah. to say, I think a big thing is, and we're, we're kind of getting to it now, is that this moment, um, to, to sit here and think about hemlock, it, it's about, I mean, it, 
it sounds really you know a little dopey, but I mean it's 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 forest versus trees, and so yeah, you could you could um, drug your tree up and save your hemlock in your backyard, but you know, but this this is one of the things that thinking about hemlock at at the moment of a species you know, situation. Uh, and also thinking about what a forest is helps us get at what, frankly, foresters help help us get at, which is a kind of rethinking um, time, you know, thinking a, in a bigger way about time. So in other words, kind of foresting versus treeing our, our notion of our landscape. So th- this, is, this is one of the great, I think, opportunities of, of, this, of this moment. And you know, and towards the end of the show, uh, we'll go, we'll shift the conversation a little bit more to the way that foresters do uh, think. Because one thing that Bob points out in his essay is that foresters are often thinking kind of from the ice age far into the future, as opposed to over the next five to ten years. Uh, but over the next five to ten years, we have some really specific issues as well. So, and, and so David Foster, you know, I know a lot of people who, when they heard about the woolly adelgid, uh, if they had hemlocks in their yard or hemlocks that they cared about somewhere, um, went out and bought ladybugs. Uh, and release the ladybugs with the notion that that they would uh, uh, leap on the woolly adelgid and and kill them now and I know that uh, at maybe a more skilled forestry level, other kinds of predator beetles have been brought in also with a desire of creating at least some antagonists uh, for the woolly adelgid how, how, how well does that stuff work right so the the ladybugs don 't work at all. Um, there have been a, a slew of insects that have been brought in and, and cultured and and released, and most of those have proven to be ineffective. There's been some, some modest success with uh, a couple of those species, but none of them, and these are all kind of predatory insects that are effective at controlling or part of the effective control of uh, the adelgid back in its, uh, its homeland. Um, none of these have really taken off in a way that, that is having a significant effect. So uh, right now the prognosis is is not at all favorable. And that's why, you know, coming back to this book that we wrote, I mean, the book talks about this dynamic, but really what it does is celebrate hemlock and celebrate the kind of majesty that Bob talks about of this remarkable tree and tries to put it in this larger context so we can use it to think about how we interact with nature, how we value nature, and how nature is cha- changing due to all of our actions. Um, while we're celebrating the hemlock, I want to do a couple of things, uh, last things in this segment, and then we're going to uh, take a break and maybe add Dana to the conversation a little bit too. But while we're celebrating, um, in just a second, I'm going to have Bob talk a little bit more about hemlock and writers, hemlock and trims and dentalists. There's a Margaret Fuller angle. You've got to use your Margaret Fuller angle these days. She just uh, nailed a Pulitzer for somebody. Yeah. But before I have Bob do that, the other thing we hadn't really talked about, David, is who else besides human beings uh, and woolly uh, adelgids uses hemlocks? I'm assuming porcupines uh, like their bark. I mean, there must be a lot of animals that, that feed off the hemlock that are eating either needles or cones or bark or something like that. Well, there, are, yes, there are, there are a lot of different uh, animals who take advantage of hemlock in a variety of different ways. Um, you know, Bob mentioned, uh, you know, the, the notion of what we call brook trout are also known as hemlock trout because the trout themselves prefer waters that are cool and often have waters that are cool and dark, and that's waters that are shaded by hemlock. But there are animals like uh, the beaver, the 
well, beavers do cut them down, but the porcupine, as you suggested, that actually eat them. And then, of course, hemlocks are known as intercepting snowfall and so creating kind of snow-free areas beneath them. And that provides refuge, especially for deer and other animals during the winter when there's deep snowfall. So there's a variety of different uh, plants, insects, mammals, and birds that take refuge in hemlock stands and use them to a variety of degrees. And when you, and when you think of the hydrology of a whole watershed and, and you know, the temperature change that a hemlock for, forest adds to that, you know, what it matters in that whole river. It's, but, no, but no snow zone is pretty amazing. Um, all right. What we'll do now, actually, we'll take a break. We can bring Dana into the conversation. We can get some more out of Bob about Robert Frost and hemlocks and Margaret Fuller and hemlocks. But also we're going to talk about Native Americans and hemlocks, uh, the ways in which hemlocks are celebrated in legend. Let me tell you who's here and what we're talking about. We're talking about the eastern hemlock. And you're thinking, "Eh, I don't want to listen to a whole show about a tree. Yeah, you do. Uh, There's a lot going on here, both uh, at the level of uh, of, ethnobotany and at the level of our own survival and at the level of the beauty of our forest. There's a lot going on here. So hang here with us. David Foster is the director of the Harvard University's Harvard Forest. Uh, And both he and one of our other guests, Bob Sullivan, are involved in the book Hemlock a forest giant on the edge, a real celebration of the eastern hemlock. Uh, Also, we're about to talk to Dana Lynn Driscoll, who blogs about sustainability and the natural world. Uh, She's going to clue us in on some Native American lore. But even before that happens, um, Bob Sullivan, one thing we should be uh, clear about, because I think uh, we're going to be talking in a second about some hemlock tea, um, you know, a lot of people hear hemlock and they think, well, that's what Socrates drank to kill himself. And there's the Hemlock Society. And so that's a completely different plant, right? Yes. And uh, when he when he drank that, it basically gave him something like a kind of severe um, multiple sclerosis, which you guys did a great show on a little bit back a little bit back. But um, uh, it, it shut down uh, the kind of neurology, his, his all his nerves until it finally shut down his breathing. That That's the plant, not the tree. But um, but you can't uh, you can't help but think that the poets who are writing about hemlock, I mean they they can't possibly separate the two. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, that's very possible. Uh, well, yeah, poets sometimes don't dwell on scientific specifics, uh, but we love them anyway. As I said, we have with us uh, Dana Lynn Driscoll. Uh, and so, first of all, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. And so you've looked a little bit into the what the eastern hemlock has meant uh, to other people, to the people who came before uh, white settlers from Europe. Um, so first of all, was this uh, um, first of all it was a tree that they could use, right? They they made tea out of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think what I've been trying to do is find some of that old knowledge and bring it back because there's a lot of uses even for today, like medicinal uses and edible uses that the native peoples knew about and that we've kind of lost in our culture. And so, yeah, they made tea. um, They used it for hunting um, to help mask their scent. They used it as a thickening agent for flour. They did all sorts of things with it. Do you do stuff like that? I mean, do you drink hemlock tea? Yes, actually, I do. So one of the things I've been doing is studying the mythology in order to actually learn some of those old skills and bring them back and teach other people as well. Is this something that might catch on? I mean, how is hemlock tea? Actually, it's really fantastic. Is it really? Mm-hmm. Good for colds? Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, um, all of the conifer teas are really high in vitamin C, 
Um, and so when you, you know, you can drink them when you have a cold. Um, and it's got like um, an aromatic piney quality, very light, but it's almost got like a floral undertone as well. So it's, it's, it's a really great drink, actually. And isn't there, is there some kind of mushroom that also grows on the hemlock? That, are you harvesting those too? Yes, there is a mushroom that grows. It's, it's actually an American reishi mushroom um, that grows. Um, it's Gandoderma sugage. I can spell that for you if you like. Yeah, I don't buy um, uh, G-A-N-O-D-E-R-M-A, and then the second word is T-S-U-G-A-E um, is the scientific name. And it's actually um, a wonderful medicinal medicinal mushroom. It's used traditionally um, both in um, Chinese traditional medicine and now more increasingly in um, Western um, Western herbalist practice as well. And that actually grows on fallen hemlocks all through all through the East Coast. See, I hope the Faith Milton Show staff is listening because they could do an entire sh- show about just the things that you can eat that are either growing on trees or part of trees or they never do the tree schmooze. All right. So um, one of the other things you're doing is just looking how, at, at how this fits in to the legends uh, of Native Americans. And I know you shared uh, with producer Betsy Kaplan a, a bunch of these different legends. Do you have a, f- a favorite story that you want to tell us that, that the, the Seneca or, or any other tribe told about the hemlock? Sure, sure. Um, Seneca and the Mi'kmaq peoples told a lot of great legends, and I think the overall theme that you can take away from all of the hemlock stories, and there are many, is that the hemlock is an aid for humans. Um, it does things like hold winter at bay. It's, it's all about warmth and heat. So um, I'll talk about one of the winter stories I really like. It's called Hotho, and this is a Seneca legend. And the cold, whose name is Hotho, attempts to conquer a man when he's out hunting. So the man, he's in, this, he's, he's in this cave, and he builds a fire, and he makes this huge kettle of hemlock tea, speaking of the tea. And the cold is pressing in around him all night in all directions, um, but the fire and the tea helped keep him warm and allowed him to overcome the cold, and then in the end he defeats winter. And there's a couple of stories like that from the Seneca legends about the hemlocks defeating winter in various ways. Well, there's a, one that seems kind of parallel about the two evil ma- magicians who are trying to, uh, to roast some other character uh, to death in a cavern, which kind mm-hmm. of breaks the other way, right? Yeah, yeah. The, um, that's a Micmac story, The Adventures of the Great Hero Puwakik and uh, or the Partridge. Um, and basically he encounters these two evil magicians, and they want to burn him up using hemlock, but their fires are fed by the hemlock bark. But basically, um, Huakik ends up bur- building a bigger fire, and he roasts the magicians in the end. And so there's also this idea of, despite the fact that the hemlock groves are very cool and soothing, a lot of the Native American lore actually talks about the hemlock as a really warming tree. Um, and that's also in the um, herbal literature as well, as the hemlock itself, the plant, is a warming agent. You know, uh, Bob Sullivan, we ought to try to draw a line from what she's talking about to some of the stuff that you've talked about, right? You looked at writers. We mentioned Thoreau, but we, we, you looked at writers ranging from Margaret Fuller to, uh, to Emily Dickinson to Robert Frost uh, to sort of see what kind of relationship they had with this tree. And in some of the ways that, the, that, that she's talking about a kind of life-giving and, and perhaps unpredictable magic, um, you can start with Margaret Fuller, right? She used to go and commune with Eastern hemlocks. We, 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 we have, it's written that she used to walk into a grove nearby where she lived, yes. Although she lived in New York, too. I, I, don't, know, I don't know where that grove would have been. But, um, and the, the grove, you know, she, the Harvard um, Arboretum uh, is around where that famous hemlock hill is. And um, it, it's, it's interesting that it's kind of about contemplation uh, for her. And yeah, she maybe appears to have been one of the 
smartest people who ever lived on the planet. The Pulitzer uh, confirming that now for the biographer too. Uh, but but also um, th- that it's a fun thing for me is that it remains that that very hill in the Arboretum remains a place for a kind of meditation or contemplation that sounds a little comic, but but it's also serious. That is, last time I was up there. Um, there are a bunch of um, beer cans uh, from high school kids. And so it, it kind of proved – and this is where the, the hemlocks no longer are. In fact, there's a few um, western hemlocks, but there's no more eastern hemlocks. But at the very top of this hill, Hemlock Hill, um, you, you know, you find a residue of a kind of a meditation session by uh, high school kids uh, on a Saturday night – um, the, and it's exactly because it's a little bit out of everybody's reach. It's a, it's a, it's a proof again that that same transcendental experience that Margaret Fuller is looking for is something that people today would be looking for. And yeah, Frost has this amazing hemlock poem. Well, that, although before we get to Frost, I should say that we yeah. now know when Margaret Fuller went to the Grove of Hemlocks to meditate – from the biography, we now know one of the things she was meditating about, particularly at that time of her life, is why Ralph Waldo Emerson wouldn't either have sex with her or marry her. Uh, I guess. Now, if we want to get into that, there's a show there we could um, – who, who's uh, – with all the transcendentalists, all I know is um, – all I know is she um, she was really tough on Thoreau when she was editing him. All right. We're going to actually uh, – before we get to Frost, let's go over to um, to David for, for a little bit of Thoreau too because you spent a lot of time with Thoreau and his notebooks. Do we, is there anything you can and, say? And I, and I think he's read the Margaret Fuller book too. Oh, he's read the Margaret Fuller book well, too. Of right. course. Um, so, um, so what was the hemlock to Thoreau? What did it mean to him? Well, Thoreau – you know, the interesting thing about Thoreau is that he lived in this – really culturally dominated landscape that was agrarian. It was filled with farms. And so while people think of him as being a a loner and searching out solitude, in fact, he spent a lot of his life just traipsing through fields and reveling at how gorgeous they were. But the hemlock was important to him because it did represent the refuge, Uh, both locally, as it did for Margaret Fuller going to a, a local hemlock grove, but also in more distant places, whether on Monadnock or when he went up to Maine. And so Hemlock was very much part of the wild, and that's the way that we still think of it today. As I mentioned earlier, it really dominates our old-growth forests, our wildest landscapes uh, throughout the New England region and beyond. So um, now, Bob, uh, we're going to go back to Dana in just a second uh, for at least one more Native American legend. But now it's time to give us uh, Robert Frost. Um, it's it's National Poem in Your Pocket Day today. Mm-hmm. Uh, can we just read the Frost poem? It's two. It's yeah. like four. It's four. Okay. Um, so and and you should know that the more time you spend in the Hemlock Forest, uh, if you go to a grove, if you if you go to the Harvard Forest, which you have to do because you have to see their museum that has these incredible dioramas about the history of forests in New England, you have to see it. Anyway, um, the the more you kind of get to this idea of, of a, a quiet place uh, of of the snow, and and then the more this poem is amazing. So here it is: the way a crow shook down on me the dust of snow from a hemlock tree has given my heart a change of mood and saved some part of a day I had rude. Mm. So it's, it's a hot poem is what I'm saying. It's, a, it's an amazing poem. Um, it's not the poem I'm carrying in my pocket today, which is about um, a sax player, but uh, it's, it's – and, 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 and you, you kind of – in that poem – 
it, it, it stops it stops time. And, and I think you're going to talk about time and the greater view of the landscape later. But um, it, it's also wonderful because it is really exact about a hemlock experience. I mean, it is interesting how many um, poets did turn to the hemlock. I also found Whitman. Uh, Whitman's about to go to sleep on, on sort of a, a group of hemlock boughs, and at the last minute, he drags a bearskin into it. He can't, you know, he's he's just, you know, loose enough so that he can't quite lie down on the hemlock boughs. He's got to, at the last minute. He needs a bearskin too. Um, all right, so I want to go back to you, Dana. First of all, we should say you kind of you grew up around these hemlocks in in Western Pennsylvania. Do I have that right? Yes. Yes. And so what were they to you? I mean, are you were, even before you discovered these Native American stories, were you tapping into your own sense of, of awe at these uh, trees? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, my earliest childhood memories are spending time going to the very bottom of the forest, you know, down this, this big hill, and there's beautiful hemlock grove there, and spending time beneath those trees. Um, and I think that that is those early childhood memories are part of what prompted me to do this research. And the other thing that happened is that um, the forest that where my parents lived below, below our house was logged when I was about 14. And watching the forest regrow and actually seeing the difficulty the hemlocks had in regrowing in certain areas and finding the reishi mushrooms in there. And a lot of this is sort of prompted by my own, by my own experience. And I think for people that really want to experience the hemlock, Getting out there, just as, as all of you have been saying, just spending some time underneath those trees, it'll, it'll teach you more than you can find in any book or, or, or myth, you know. But don't eat any mushrooms uh, without consulting a mycologist. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Take some mushroom classes before you yeah. do anything like that. That's not an area where you want to mess around. Well, you know, Dina, I think we have time for one more story. I kind of like, simply because of its craziness and ambiguousness, uh, the little boy uh, and his dog, Beautiful Ears story. Uh, maybe you can tell us that one. Um, sure. Unless there's one that you really vastly prefer. Um, well, actually, I, that that story is great because she she summons she she throws she burns her house down and summons a snowstorm. Um, and I think But my my favorite story is actually um, some of the 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 hemlock needle stories. All right, tell us a needle story. Okay, so there's a couple of stories. They all have the same theme. There's a raccoon story, the mink and his uncle, and the uncle and his nephew, and these all come out of Seneca legend, and basically. The, the, these people, in every case, there's a person who finds themselves stranded. Um, either, like in the raccoon story, there's a man who's caught on a cliff. He's stuck. He's going to starve to death. He has no way down. And so he pulls a hemlock needle from his pocket, and he sings a song to the hemlock needle, and he drops it. And then a mighty hemlock grows up from the ground, and he's able to climb down and save himself. And there's a number of these stories, and I think they're really interesting. Because, again, there's this idea of the hemlock coming to the aid of the humans in this way. I think that also happens in one of the Superman movies. Just like one little thing, like turns into this whole big thing. Maybe it happens in all of the Superman <laughs> yeah. movies. All right. So, uh, but not it's not Hemlock specific. All right. We're going to take a little break right now. Uh, when we come back, we are, as Bob Sullivan said, going to talk in a more expansive and then sometimes contracted way uh, about time and forests. We'd love to hear from you at eight six zero two seven five seven two six six if you have your own questions, comments, lamentations. Well, we'll listen to all of them. Eight six zero two seven five seven two six six Okay, ladybugs, fly up there and kill those woolly adelgids. What do you mean you're vegetarians? Jeez. 
Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Our intern is George Andrew Ben Hemlock Otterman Lischke. Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin and appeared in our intro. Katie Tolarski is our executive producer. The part of Bill Curry was played by Yule Gibbons. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff making French toast with Eastern Hemlock Syrup, visit our webpage at WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, The Nose ponders a week of pine tar scandals and rambunctious professors. And now, back to Colin. That's one thing they could do is introduce a, a hemlock syrup at the International House of Pancakes. But I think pe- because of that confusion, people wouldn't order it because of the aforementioned confusion about the two different kinds of hemlocks. So uh, we've got a lot of calls coming in. I want to get to those, but I also want to get to the whole subject of um, of sort of time and how we look at forests. And I think from uh, David and Bob, we may have two slightly different perspectives. But um, David Foster, uh, in his essay, which is the foreword to the book, um, Bob Sullivan um, it celebrates and accuses foresters of thinking in these vast expanses of time in, in terms of thousands and thousands uh, of years, or maybe even larger segments of time. And from that point of view, what's happening right this moment with hemlocks and woolly adelgids is a little pinprick on a gigantic timescape. So, so how does that either help us think about it or just give into it? No, I think time helps an awful lot. Um, it's probably surprising to most people to understand that hemlock, more than any other tree, has suffered um, tremendously over time. That is, has has expanded and contracted in ways that even the chestnut, which has essentially disappeared from our landscape as a as a tree, um, uh, has undergone. So, the long history shows that 5,000 years ago, hemlock was one of the dominant trees all across eastern North America. And abruptly, in the matter of just a couple of decades, it declined to the point that it was almost completely impossible to find. It just was restricted to very small populations. And that persisted for 1,500 years. Uh, It then came back, and by the time European people arrived here in North America, it was very abundant again. It then was decimated by human activity the second time and has come back. And now this third time, it's an insect which is starting to contract its range. So hemlock has recovered in the past, which is actually an optimistic note for today, except when we recognize that the time that it declined 5,000 years ago, it took over 1,000 years before it recovered. And and we can talk about letting nature take its course, but the, and this is nature from a certain point of view, but it's also an insect that's not supposed to be here. Does that make a difference? Well, it does in some ways. I mean, it, it does in the sense that we should do everything that we absolutely can to restrict the importation of non-native insects. Because what happens is an insect that grows on hemlock in Asia may have a very different impact on, a, in, on hemlock here in the United States, and that's what's happened this time. But once the trees start to die, we need to think of this as playing out like any other kind of natural disturbance in the forest. And we have to recognize that forests actually have mechanisms for coping, and there's very little that we can do other than trying to control the insect to make things better. So, Bob, is that the way you see it, or, or do you have a less foresty or forestry uh, view of all this? I'm not, I'm not a forester. I'm, not, I'm just looking through my wallet. I'm not anything. So, that's, so um, you know, I'm also looking through, um, I mean, I'm also looking through the, the, 
the Hemlock Book, there's a there's a panorama of the forest after the 1938 hurricane. And I think if you go to the forest, if you go all over New England, as probably a billion of your listeners know, um, you'll see some of those trees sort of in the same angle, you know, from the wind, from the hurricane. Um, I, I guess I think that, uh, you know, I've I'm, I'm, I listened to a lot of public radio uh, this morning. They're talking about um, how colleges and universities have to um, start thinking again of uh, of education as a, as a public matter, not as something that we do for individuals, uh, which um, many universities do, but we have to do it more. I, I, I guess um, so much, you know, so many of the problems that I see as a guy with no expertise in his wallet uh, have to do with us thinking without uh, humility. That, you know, there's no humility. And so um, it's, it's the idea of like, oh, I'll, I'll save... I mean, I, I don't want to make it as simple as you, you save your tree and you're not thinking about anyone else. But, but again, the, the, you know, we're we're probably not going to be able to save save hemlock uh, is is my understanding, and um, you know, th- these these forces that are that are bigger than us, uh, there there's an opportunity here to understand that we have to work with with the forces as sort of. Again, ridiculous as that sound, but we, we always forget it. And so, so this, this is a good moment for that. The other thing is there's an amazing um, thing. I, I couldn't get this into the o- Orion piece. Um, you know, they only gave me so much room. But there, there's an amazing moment in, um, in, in this story about Hemlock and the Harvard Forest um, in, in 1999 where suddenly a book shows up. Or they get, they get, I think David gets a call from... Uh, a, a rare book dealer who, who's got this this journal um, of of the farm. Of, it turns out it's the farm that was where the Harvard Forest is now, and it's dating back pre-colonial times. And it's got all the records of everything that was bought and sold, and and the record of the tannery. And no tannery had ever been archaeologically investigated in New England before their tannery was investigated. I mean, tanneries were everywhere. Tan- tanneries were a big thing. But the the big thing that comes out of the book for me, out of the book that they discover that is this incredible environmental history, is that. They, the farm was busy trading all over in in Boston and so and all over the countryside and so it it via Boston the farm is connected to the world and the idea that in the past we were more simple we were less connected I think is another thing that 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 is not a very humble thought on our part so so I just say I would just say humility I need to think about it all the time I'm never good at it so that's for us to help me well. Bob Sullivan, if you check your wallet, I think you'll find you're not a forester, but I think you're two hole punches away from a free bagel. So that's thank uh, you. <laughs> you know, you're very close there. Anyway, here's I just uh, want to be in your listening zone. All that's right. All right. Here's Thomas uh, on his cell phone. Hi, Thomas. Thanks for calling. Thomas, uh, this is Thomas. Hi. Hi. It's nice to talk to you. My name is Tom Wardley. I'm the uh, extension forester with the University of Connecticut. I came in into the middle of your show here and uh, uh, heard you heard your number and thought I'd dial in. Um, a comment about hemlocks. Hemlocks are the most shade-tolerant species we have in the state, uh, uh, in the conifers, and uh, they are naturally uh, uh, very slow-growing, and they develop in this shady environment. And when they grow in groves, they uh, protect their own uh, environment by creating so much shade that nothing else can grow underneath them. And so 
Um, they they create these environments, these uh, uh, these dark and still and uh, and shady environments when the hemlocks are mature that you can't help but feel humble when you're in one of those stands. Yeah, Thomas, and, actually, we did talk a little bit about that at the beginning of the show, although yeah, actually okay. this is a great way to bring us towards our conclusion uh, is for you to, to remind us uh, a little bit about that, that remarkable dominance of the hem- hemlock that does uh, create that kind of environment. Actually, before I take the next call, though, speaking of the dominance of the hemlock, and then we hear Bob say, well, you know, we're, somehow or other we're probably going to lose this battle. So David Foster, when there aren't hemlocks, what will there be? Is there some kind of birch uh, waiting in the wings to jump into the space vacated by hemlocks? Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what's waiting in the wings. And uh, what we're seeing in so many places is that um, as after the hurricane, and that was a good analogy by Bob, which is that, you know, after disturbances, after losses in the forest, there are other things that come in. And if we remove one species, there are others waiting to take that space. In this particular case, black birch is one of the big winners. Um, the fascinating thing, as the last uh, caller just mentioned, is that black birch is a completely different tree. It doesn't have anywhere near the kind of shade tolerance. It won't create the kind of environment of hemlock. So we'll end up in a very different place than we were in the kinds of forests that Margaret Fuller and Henry Thoreau walked through. A more a more dappled place, apparently. It'll be a more dappled place. It'll be a place that's a lot more like the rest of the forest that we already have. And so the big significance here is that you lose hemlock and you lose a distinctive element in New England. All right. We don't have time to take another call. So I'm, first of all, going to apologize to Lauren from Griswold and Jack from Hartford. If you will email me your question or comment at Colin, C-O-L-I-N, at WNPR.org. We'll get it up as part of our website. I can always also forward your question or comment to David Foster or Bob Sullivan or both, as seems appropriate. Thanks to everybody who worked on this show. A reminder, the book that sort of started all this is Hemlock, A Forest Giant on the Edge, edited by David Foster with a foreword by Bob Sullivan. Uh, It's published by Yale Press, and I imagine that that means that you can get it. Anyway, thanks for joining us today. We'll be back with the nose tomorrow. I'm Kion Wolf. Oh, hemlock tree. It feels as though I've waited my whole life to feel the gentle caress of your needle. Ow! To embrace your luxurious bark. Ow! To stroke your... uh, You know, I just don't think this is going to work out.